you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the March 8th, 2021 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Tonight, as we continue our journey through Women's History Month, we celebrate the 2002 film Frida with its creator and stars. Talk to Tina Alexis Allen about her book, Hiding Out, a memoir of drugs, deception, and double lives. And take the IMRU Gayback Machine to 2017 for the Los Angeles Women's March. But first, we chat up the queen of 1950s lesbian pulp fiction, Anne Bannon. Anne Bannon is the pen name of the most popular writer of iconic lesbian pulp novels of the late 1950s and early 60s. Her six books were Odd Girl Out, I Am Woman, Women in the Shadows, Journey to a Woman, The Marriage, and Bebo Brinker. According to the Bloomsbury Guide to Women's Literature, Bannon's character, Bebo Brinker, has come to personify the 1950s Bar Butch and her ongoing search for true love. But the real-life Anne Wilde was a wife and mother when she wrote these books. Anne, take me back 50-plus years. How did Anne Wilde become Anne Bannon? Well, it was clear to me and reinforced by my very nervous husband that there was no way I could put my actual name on the front of one of those wild and woolly (laughs) paperback covers. It would end up for sure across the nearly bare bosom of a very seductive lady. And he said, I never want to see that. So I had to find a pen name. It was partly that, and it was partly the problem of sheer terror at being found out. So I went through all kinds of names, and finally one evening my husband had brought home a list of prospective customers. He was a salesman at the time. And on the list was the name Bannon. And I thought, gee, that's nice. And it puts me up at the front of the alphabet. So it had everything to recommend it. (laughs) Plus, nobody knew who it was. Did your husband read your books? No, he's still living. He's in his late 80s. But he confessed to me about three or four months ago that he had read only one of them. And that was the first one, Odd Girl Out. And he didn't read it until decades after it had been published and republished by many different publishers. He did, on the other hand, read a few pages when I was writing it. Made him very nervous. 
But I won an Oscar for being a nice young housewife and mom, and that reassured him. I was very conventional outwardly. And he found it difficult to talk about. He didn't want to believe it. He assumed that I was just jumping on the same bandwagon with a few other women who were writing original pulp paperbacks at the time. And it was very successful. And when my royalty checks began to come in, he cheered up demonstrably. So how did it all start? How did you become a writer? I always wrote, and I think providentially at that time, I found on the bookstore shelves a paperback reprint of uh, Radcliffe Hall's novel, The Well of Loneliness, which I found riveting and infuriating because it went from one gloomy crisis to the next, but at least it was a lesbian story and a very interesting one. And practically right next to it on the drugstore shelf was the first lesbian pulp original by an author named Vin Packer, and the book was called Spring Fire. And it was a college romance between two young women who were sorority sisters. And I thought, oh, Eureka, I just got out of college. I was in a sorority. I know about this, too. So I sat down with my husband's old Remington portable at the dining room table, and I started telling the story as cautiously as I could. I ended up with almost 600 pages, mostly about a handsome young fellow who meets one of the two girls in the story, and they end up getting married and going off hand in hand. In the meantime, I wrote to the author of Spring Fire and said, rather portentously, I too have written a novel. And I don't know why she didn't throw my letter in the wastebasket at that very moment, but she got kind of intrigued and she wrote back. And the upshot was she invited me to New York. I was living in Philadelphia. And she said, if you can get up here, I will introduce you to my editor and you bring your manuscript and we'll see what he thinks. Well, it took me a while to talk Ward Cleaver into letting this happen, and he finally caved when I told him that I had found an all-women's hotel and that I would stay in the all-women's hotel, (laughs) and he said, well, then that makes it okay, but you have to promise me you'll stay at the women's hotel. So I did, and I went up there. I met Vin Packer, who turned out to be a remarkable woman still writing. Her real name is Mary Jane Meeker. She's written as Anne Aldrich and M.E. Kerr and various other names. Absolutely brilliant and very interesting. And she took me over to the gold medal books offices near Times Square and introduced me to Dick Carroll, who was the editor-in-chief, an old movie guy. He'd written film scripts. He'd been a film editor, and uh, they brought him into gold medal to see if he could handle the new original paperback section. So he read the book as a courtesy to Mary Jane in just a couple of days, and I went in to meet him with my knees knocking, and he said very kindly, you know, this is not a good book, but he saw something in it. And what he saw were the two sorority girls of my story, Beth and Laura, whom I had carefully shunted off to a shadowy corner. 
And he said, bring those girls center stage. They are your story. And uh, go home, rewrite the book. It should be half the length it is now. And tell the story of the two girls, which rocked me because I thought I had been so subtle that nobody would pick up on the fact (laughs) that the girls were romantically interested in each other. So I went home. I cut the length of the book in half. I told the story of Beth and Laura and brought it back with some terribly proper title like Same Time, Same Place, which had nothing to do with anything. And within a week, I heard back from Dick Carroll. He said, we love it. We're going to publish it. The title of the book is now Odd Girl Out. Your, your books are often called the Bebo Brinker Chronicles. So who was Bebo Brinker? Bebo was my fantasy butch, and I kind of dreamed her up based in part on a sorority sister who had the look, but not the emotional engagement. But she was a, a beautiful gal, very tall, actually a honey blonde, where Bebo has darker hair. But I took off from that, and I was trying to think who she would be, how she would be, if only I could meet her walking around a corner in Greenwich Village. And I was struggling with this. I knew she would look like a blend of Ingrid Bergman and Johnny Weissmuller. I mean, she was going to be this otherworldly, wonderful, fantasy, buccaneering young butch. And I couldn't quite nail her down until I remembered a name from my childhood. One of my classmates couldn't pronounce her name as a little girl. And it was Beverly, and she came up with Bebo. And I thought, my God, that's it, Bebo. And the name Brinker came to me, and then suddenly I had her whole and entire, as they say, And although I never met the real Bebo, I have met women that came pretty close, (laughs) that always kind of grabbed me by the heartstrings. So I started with that. She was quite a heller, and she had a lot to rebel against in those times. But she would take jobs that uh, um, permitted her to wear pants. Um, She bravely and foolishly uh, looked butch. And of course, those were the days when you had to choose, are you butch or are you femme? And there's a wonderful story about that that Robin Tyler tells when she was very young and naive, and she came out to some lesbian friends, and they said, well, which are you, butch or femme? She said, well, what's the difference? And they said, well, you know, the femme does the dishes, and she does the dusting and vacuuming. And Robin said, I'm a butch. (laughs) So uh, Bebo was just born butch, farm kid from Wisconsin, and big, handsome girl. And she had to learn to be as self-assured and sophisticated as she looked. And she did learn that. What was the gay and lesbian scene in the village like in the 50s? It really was kind of a magical place. I've described it as Dorothy landing in Munchkinland and opening the door and everything suddenly in technicolor beautiful, fun, and amazing to be able to walk down a street in Greenwich Village and see two guys or two gals holding hands, everyone being perfectly friendly, nobody shocked, nobody remonstrating with you for doing that. It was a charming and a charmed place. 
it wasn't the only place in the world where wonderful things were happening. I know Los Angeles had a lively community, and they were very active politically with the Mattachine Society. San Francisco was developing the Daughters of Belitis with uh, Phyllis Lyon and Del Martin. Some scholarly works were coming out. Even Dr. Kinsey took an interest in all this and uh, published, I think, in 1954 his, his book about the sex life of the human female, which was occasion for rejoicing and opening of champagne bottles in some quarters. But the village itself truly was a sort of mecca for young gay and lesbian people. I was thrilled to have been there. And then, because my life took me so far away, it was another 45, 46 years before I was able to get back. And uh, it's still seductive. It's still charming. But now it looks quite sleek and prosperous. And when I was there in the 50s and early 60s, it looked a little shabby and down at heel. But I don't think any of us minded it was just so much fun and so validating to be with people who were perfectly bright, sensible people, but who happened to be LGBT people. And they were also the wittiest and the most creative and the most fun to talk to and to tangle with. So I met a lot of people who, some of whom I remember clearly, many of whom I remember fuzzily but all of whom I remember fondly. <laughs> You've written all these love stories that have been read by millions of people. Do you ever find your Bebo? I came close a time or two. Some wonderful women have passed in and out of my life. I'm not partnered now, but it's okay. I am buried in grandchildren, grand doggies, lots of people in my life, and lots of writing still to do. But, you know, you never give up. <laughs> Any regrets? One thing I can say I kind of regret is that I didn't realize how seriously they were taken and how much they were needed, the, the old books. Women now say they hid them behind the fridge or under the mattress or in a shoebox in the closet, and they were their treasures. They did live in fear that a parent or an older sibling would find them, and they'd be in big trouble, and it did happen to a few of them. But some of them have cherished those books for, it's now over half a century. It was 1957 when Odd Girl Out was published, and how life-affirming they were for most of them. And the other side of that is, I suppose if I had known when I was writing that I was doing something that would be remembered for so many years, it might have paralyzed me. I've been talking to iconic lesbian pulp author, Ann Bannon. For more information, you can visit her personal website at annbannon.com. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Once I had a secret That lived within the heart of me All too soon my secret love Became impatient to be
Bannon's books rest on the bookshelf of nearly every even faintly literate lesbian. They are taught in women's and LGBT studies courses, and Bannon has received numerous awards for pioneering lesbian and gay literature. She's 88 years old and lives in Northern California. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this quick break. American actor and singer Jim Neighbors, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Born in 1930 in Sylacorga, Alabama to Mavis and Fred Neighbors, Jim Neighbors began singing in church and in the high school glee club. Then he acted in skits in college. After studying at the University of Alabama, he moved to New York and became a typist for the United Nations. Neighbors' asthma prompted a move to Los Angeles, where he worked as a film cutter for NBC. He also worked at a Santa Monica nightclub called The Horn, singing and acting in their cabaret theater. It was there Neighbors got his big break. He was discovered by Andy Griffith and hired to play a one-episode role as Gomer Pyle, an unworldly, kind-hearted gas station attendant on The Andy Griffith Show. His character proved popular, and he became a regular in the show. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Cece Hull. Hello, I'm Ann Stockwell, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. In January of 2017, hundreds of thousands of people clogged L.A. city streets, sardined together for hours as the masses oozed from Pershing Square toward City Hall and back again. Like marchers in scores of other cities around the country, this event was coordinated with the national organizers behind the Women's March in Washington, D.C. But it had its own la-la-land character. The area was lousy with celebrities, from Jamie Lee Curtis to Natalie Portman to Miley Cyrus and had strong representation from immigrants whom local politicians vowed to protect in what many feel were uncertain times. Tonight, we use the IMRU Gayback Machine to join Abby Dees on that empowering day. This is Abby Dees. I joined the Los Angeles Women's March, one of over 600 women's marches held around the world one day after Donald Trump's inauguration as the 45th president of the United States. But like hundreds of thousands of my fellow Angelinos, first I had to get there. to start promptly at 10 a.m. from Pershing Square. I'm with my friends about two blocks away from Pershing Square and we absolutely cannot get closer for all the people waiting to march. 
So the vibe seems to be that we're all just going to stand here and wait for something to move because we certainly can't get any closer. See what happens. Start marching now. LGBT radio show. I was wondering if I could ask you a couple of questions. You gotta walk with us though. I'll walk with you. Could I have your name and tell me where you're from? My name is Andy. I'm a non-binary trans and I'm from LA, South Central. Why are you here? I'm here more about what's... Sorry. I'm here more about what's going on with the LGBT community, especially with the trans community also, and what it's happening. Like they're targeting the most vulnerable community right now. So I'm right here with my fellow comrades fighting against this fascism as well, racism that's going on in the United States. I'm Latinx as well, so we're ready right now to fight. What's the message that you'd like to send today? I think a huge message that I want to send is that we're sacred that we're sacred and that we deserve to have each other on this, like on these hard times. I'm Raya Doshi and I'm from South Pasadena. I'm here because I'm marching for women's rights because I think women are equal to men and I think that they should have the same rights as men. And I feel like women are discriminated for a lot of things and I feel like we should all be equal. Can I have your name and where you're from? Leslie Ito from South Pasadena. Tell me about this sign. It says the ancestors are watching. So this is uh, Yuri Kochiyama and Grace Lee Boggs, and they're both civil rights leaders that have passed away. But if they were here today, they would be out organizing and protesting. And, and I thought it was important to make sure that the presence of Asian American women were part of this rally and march. And so I thought this is the most appropriate way to do that. And lots of people have been stopping and asking about them and mostly Asian Americans. But I had one woman come up to me and say, you know, I come from a family of Russian immigrants. And so I think it also has that connotation as well that we're all immigrants and that we're all standing together against this administration. Here's a sign ahead of me. If you're reading this, thanks for having my back. Know that I have yours. And that seems to be the dominant sentiment in this march, in this gathering, that we are here together. This may be a women's march, but I am seeing every kind of person here. sound is music coming from the windows of downtown LA. There are people as far as I can see. I have absolutely no idea from where I'm standing in the jewelry district. How many people are in front of me? How many people are behind me? People are coming in from all streets. Utterly peaceful. There's lots of music. There's lots of laughing. 
I haven't seen any protesters protesting the march, at least not yet. This group is handing out free bottles of water to everybody because the sun really has come out. Water, ma'am? All three of you, water? What's your organization? We're the Sikh community. Sikh community? They're not just handing out water, they're handing out... Chana Masala. That's amazing. The march actually seems to have split to the adjoining streets just to take some of the load off. I'm standing at 3rd and Broadway, but I can see one block over on Hill Street there is an equally large contingent of marchers with signs all making their way to City Hall. This is what America looks like. This is what America looks like. This is what democracy looks like. This might be the most representative sign of the morning. Thanks, Trump. You turned me into an activist. My name is Amy Love and I'm from Long Beach. I brought my 16-year-old daughter here today so that we could together march against what we feel is an illegitimate presidency. The Russian government has most likely, actually definitely, interfered with an election and changed the minds and ideas of many voters, regardless of whether or not they hacked into our voting booths. I think they hacked into our minds. And I don't think that this man is really our president. May I also talk to your daughter? I'm Macy. I hope that people will become more open-minded with all these protests and peaceful protests going on. My name is Jana, and I'm from West Hollywood. We're here to protest the inauguration, the election that was rigged, democracy. We're here to protest the buying out of democracy. And, of course, to show that women can come together and demand our rights, because they're all about to be taken away. Lisa Hamilton, Altadena, California. I'm here for a lot of reasons. One is I'm pretty much disgusted with what I'm seeing now and I refuse to normalize this behavior. Trump to me is an abusive personality and I'm really afraid of what he's capable of. I just worry about the direction that this country is going in. I feel like it's a time where we need more compassion. We need to be more vigilant against racism. I'm very worried about people of color and what they have to lose in this Trump presidency. I just worry about the future for my son as well, who's an African-American boy. So my hope for this country is that there's a place for everyone. That's my hope for the future. It looks like we might have made it to the end. We are somewhat close to City Hall. There are just so many people here. Once again, it looks almost impossible to make it to where the speakers are. But so far, the entire march has been peaceful, positive, happy. I haven't seen a sign of a fight, of vandalism, of disrespect, nothing. But there certainly is still a response from the crowd, and every time people towards the stage start cheering and clapping, that wave reverberates through the crowd. I can't even see who's, who's the speaker. Like so. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. 
So you just marched. Was it what you expected? Was there anything that surprised you? I was very surprised that there were a lot of men here too, but it was really empowering and I'm glad I was able to experience it. Next time you come to a march, is there anything you would do differently or prepare for? Um, I would bring some snacks. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. This is Abby Dees at the Los Angeles Women's March. Organizers at the time said the massive event was not meant to be anti-Trump or even a protest. It really surpassed the election, said Dove Rose, an energy healer who got involved in organizing the L.A. March days after Hillary Clinton lost the election. It is a peaceful movement showing that we have each other's backs. Frida is a 2002 American biographical drama film directed by Julie Tamer, which depicts the professional and private life of the surrealist Mexican artist Frida Kahlo. Steve Pride talked to all involved. Senor Rivera. Who are you? What do you want? I have something important to discuss with you. Okay, come on up here. No, you come down. Mexican artist Frida Kahlo was born on July 6, 1907. Her amazing life included polio, a broken back, a miscarriage, the loss of a leg, two marriages to muralist Diego Rivera, and countless love affairs with both men and women. Hey, listen, if you think I'm going to sleep with you just because you've taken me under your wing, you're wrong. I was painting murals and womanizing in peace when you came along. Now this life has been brought to the screen in a film called Frida, starring Salma Hayek. This was a story that was important for me to tell. I think it's a story that shows Mexico in a light that it's never seen before. You know, at this particular period of time that Frida Lipton was there, Mexico was the nucleus for a lot of sophisticated minds that were kicked out of their country because they were threatening in some way to their countries. And they came and found refugee in Mexico. So it was a bohemian atmosphere of a group of people that were eager to change the world and have new ideas. And um, I don't think people is often seen in this way. And I, I really wanted to show this part of my country and this extraordinary woman that inspired me because of her courage to be unique, always, in everything she did. Frida Kahlo began to paint in 1925 while recovering from a streetcar accident that left her permanently disabled and in pain for most of her life. Her work was personal and primitive. Frida had a style of painting. She did this painting that nobody liked. It was not that she didn't pursue it, nobody liked it. And uh, at the time, it was the time of the muralists. And all these people were painting the reality of the country and the walls of the country, and there were social big concepts. And Frida was making these little, very personal portraits. And uh, she was never influenced by what was going out out there. She never tried to paint things that people would like and buy. She never tried to paint too much that she would become more popular. She painted when she felt like it. She painted what she felt like it. A couple of times she did paint to try to survive. When she got a divorce from Diego in 1940, this is the period of time where she painted the most, 1940 to 1941. And um, 
she really wanted to be financially independent from Diego. She was not. She really struggled. She didn't really sell that many. And uh, she did also some portraits of other people, not just anyone, but people that she did care for, uh, trying to achieve this financial. But she was never terribly aggressive because she was never really ready to compromise what she did. And the only person that really understood how genius she was was Diego. And when Diego dies, uh, he leaves a document that says that the house that they lived in should become the Frida Kahlo Museum. And it is thanks to Diego that today Frida is who she is, because otherwise she would have never even had a museum. And um, now this museum is very, very visited by a lot, a lot of people. It's very popular in Mexico. In 1953, when Frida Kahlo had her first solo exhibition in Mexico, a local critic wrote, it is impossible to separate the life and work of this extraordinary person. Her paintings are her biography. In making the film, director Julie Tamar used this to her advantage. Unlike many other artist stories, where you don't know why a person paints a painting, you really can't tell me why someone goes into an abstraction like Pollock or why the sunflowers are painted by, except that they're pretty, by Van Gogh, Frida Kahlo painted her own life. So there was something easier quite honestly, about that, because you could see the moments where the paintings must have come into fruition in her mind. So I went through all of the paintings, and I picked eight or nine that I thought would be great moments to almost end a chapter of her life or begin the next one, like the wedding portrait or the cropped hair. And because you can see in the history, you can see in her story that that happened after Diego had an affair with her sister Christina and she cut her hair. I could find the physical landscape to show the mental, interior landscape of what was going on. And I thought, there's nothing more boring than to just have somebody with a paintbrush at a canvas. It doesn't tell you why and how they paint those strokes or those subject matters. So though you see that occasionally, it's not the dominant experience of her as an artist. The experience of Frida as an artist to see her imagination opening up. And you understand it because you understand the environment from which this idea sprung. And later I figured if I could put those pieces together in the sophisticated, naive style of Frida, through animation, through hand-painted animation, through puppet animation. When you finally see the paintings, the audience maybe would say, oh, I understand why she painted her Tejuana dress in the middle of New York City skyline. And it's not just a painting. You go back to the story that made this painting happen. So I, I try really to do it in her style, which I think is charming, beautiful, naive, and very wicked. Although the film focuses on Frida's relationship with her husband, it doesn't shy away from her bisexuality. And like I said before, you know, when you take a character, you have to embrace it for everything that she was. And that is a very important part of who she was. It will be a betrayal not to include that, because she had meaningful relationships with women. I think they were terribly important. Frida Kahlo has become a feminist icon, so it's appropriate that women were the driving force in bringing her story to the screen. This is the first time where I think being a woman had an effect with Salma, with the other women involved in telling the story. I hired a female, we had Sarah Green, we had a, a line producer, our producer, there were many women involved. First we thought it was gonna be a problem in Mexico, quite the opposite. They all said, oh, it's much better working with women. They loved 
working with us. Also, there's very many personal things that Selma and I talked about as women. And it was a, it was a very charged feminine environment, but I think it's a good thing for Frida. And according to Salma Hayek, uh, what goes through my mind is that nothing would make Frida happier than through telling her story to have, for the first time, a female director win an Oscar. Frida Kahlo died on July 13, 1954. Although she painted in obscurity during much of her life, in death her reputation as a painter has eclipsed that of her famous husband. You paint her too, Mrs. Rivera. Just killing time. She's much better than me. You'll see. Frida is a Miramax release directed by Julie Tamar, starring Selma Hayek, Alfred Molina, Jeffrey Rush, Antonia Banderas, Ashley Judd, and Edward Norton. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Salías del templo un día llorona cuando al pasar yo te vi. Salías del templo un día llorona cuando al pasar yo te vi. Hermoso huipil llevabas llorona que la virgen te Hermoso huipil llevabas llorona que la virgen te Ay de mi llorona, llorona, llorona de azul celeste Ay de mi llorona, llorona, llorona de azul celeste No dejaré de quererte llorona aunque la vida me cueste No dejaré de quererte llorona aunque la vida me cueste Frida is now available to stream on American Netflix and the Pluto TV app. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Jim Neighbors Big Move coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Jim Neighbors is most remembered for his role as Gomer Pyle in the 1960s. What many people didn't know was that in 1976, Neighbors moved to Hawaii and bought a macadamia plantation on Maui. He relocated to be with his longtime partner, Stan Cadwallader, who worked as a firefighter. In 1994, Neighbors nearly lost his life. On a trip to India, he used a straight razor to shave and cut himself badly. It led to hepatitis B. The disease caused liver damage and left Neighbors with a grim prognosis. But comedian Carol Burnett saved the day. She made arrangements with the UCLA transplant team and helped secure a transplant donor. Neighbors became well enough to embark on another performance tour. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Cece Hall. Hello, I am Patricia Velasquez and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And you are listening to IMRU Radio. Tina Alexis Allen is author of the book Hiding Out, a memoir of drugs, deception, and double lives. According to the Washington Post, Allen showcases excellent writing skills, 
packaging grit and grime into glistening prose. Her twisted mystery, family woes of the nastiest kind, and multi-layered love stories spin together to form a can't-put-down read. From 2018, Steve Pride reports. This is Steve Pride, bringing you Pride Out Loud and talking to actress, playwright, GLAAD Award nominee, Tina Alexis Allen. Already a breakout star on the WGN and Hulu series, Outsiders. Last month, she added acclaimed author to her hyphenate with the publication of Hiding Out, a memoir of drugs, deception, and double lives. Hi, I'm Tina Alexis Allen. The book is about my journey in my young adulthood from 18 into my early 20s, where I was keeping a plethora of secrets and lies. And my father started to reveal some of his secrets and lies. And the two of us became confidants and lived a double life inside of my devout Catholic family of 12 siblings. Why did you choose to write the book now? I've been working on this material for a really long time, pretty much since I became an actor. I started doing solo shows. I wrote screenplays. I just found my way into creating my own work through my autobiographical material. And I think it's just been a culmination of um, time and readiness. And this is sort of the last story that in a way I have to tell. I had worked with so many other stories, but me and my dad just felt so huge, so unique, kind of Shakespearean, kind of epic, if you will. And I think it needed to be told for a lot of reasons, not necessarily only because I wanted to tell it, but I think there are a lot of teaching moments in the book. You had a very abusive home life. Yeah, the house was chaotic. They had 12 older brothers and sisters, very Catholic, not Mormon. Usually people ask, which is it? (laughs) Yeah, very devout Catholic home. And I had abuse in the home, was molested by two brothers over, you know, a couple years. And it was confusing. It was overwhelming. I think we all were in our own strange way, needing love, needing affection. My mother as I say, had two arms and 13 kids. My dad was constantly traveling. So I think we were, all of us, in need of things we didn't have. And because of my father's, I think, alcoholism, the fear that was in the home, I think those kinds of things aren't uncommon, unfortunately, to happen in a household where there is dysfunction and a lot of neediness and not a lot of boundaries. In the book, you say your father was very, very Catholic. What does that mean? Well, he wanted to be a priest before he met my mother. And I'm not sure of all the details, but obviously he didn't become a priest. But if you were to have met him, you'd think he was quite priest-like. He went to Mass every day. He knew the Mass in Latin. He could recite a Mass verbatim. We said the rosary every night after dinner on our knees. And he was knighted by the Pope for the work that he had done and was continuing to do in my childhood into my adulthood in the Holy Land particularly. And secret things that I talk about in the book, I don't want to be too ahead of myself, but there were definitely connections to the Vatican. And I'm sure that was some of the reason why he was knighted as well. You were involved with your teacher when you were only 11. In my middle school years, 
I began a liaison with a teacher. And basically she, and it was a she, seduced me. And I was, as I say, you know, not your average 11-year-old, definitely desperate for a pair of warm arms. Absolutely, I feel like she, of course, initiated and started this. She had given me an awful lot of attention first, and then it turned sexual. And I, you know, as I say in the book, eventually, you know, I didn't feel forced, but obviously it was a really big thing that overwhelmed me that was confusing, you know, to be the apple of the cool teacher's eye, to be getting attention that I did need, but then there was this high price to pay, and of course she would be in jail today, rightly so. When did you know that what happened was really, really wrong? It took me a long time, actually, and part of that was because obviously I was managing a lot of stuff from my childhood and all the things with my dad, which we haven't talked about yet, but, you know, I was shut down. I was shut down and I was partying, and I was numbing, and I was running, and I was achieving to get away and, I guess, stay away from any feeling. But I'd say by my mid-20s, when I got to be the age she was, when our affair, I'm saying that in quotes, (laughs) began, she was 26, 27, I looked at 11-year-olds, and I was like, there's no way. How could I? Why would I? I would never. (laughs) So it started to be clear to me who I might have been at 11 and how wrong it was. And there were so many other choices that she had. I mean, helping me was wonderful, and it could have stopped there. She could have just mentored me, got me back on track, nurtured me if that's what she wanted to do platonically. But to cross over into a full-blown sexual relationship at 11, 12, 13 with someone 15 years older than I left a lot of questions and confusion and behaviors that, of course, you get to take that ride in my book. You know, who do we become when we're sexualized at such a young age? And it was really important for me to give you the context, you being the reader, of the sexuality that happened, not because this is about molestation and sexual abuse. That's not what my book is about. However, you need the context to take the ride with me in my early 20s to see and understand who I was being. And much later, you thought about doing a movie. I suspect this whole process will eventually land, I hope, into a TV series is really my goal today. But yes, I think, you know, you asked me why the book now. And each step of the way, I feel like as an actor, as a creative person, that I've unraveled my past, uh, of course, with a lot of therapy, but also with creative projects. So yes, I wrote a screenplay probably 15 plus years ago, and was going to actually play her. Somehow that seemed like a good idea. Like, what would that be to actually own and maybe better understand who she was and what was going on? And I went back home to get into development on it as an independent film, and I was young and new in the business, so I was kind of scrambling, figuring it out on the fly. And I spent about nine months in my hometown working on this, And in the process of that, I really got it at the end of the period of time I was there that it was really wrong and that I needed to speak out for myself. Like I just needed to say this happened because when I was young, you know, my mom and family and the community, I mean, everyone knew I was spending all kinds of time with her and nobody said anything, did anything. And that's fine. I probably didn't want them to, to be honest, uh, once I was in it. 
uh, I didn't want anyone to come between us. But by this time, being back home, I realized it was very wrong. So I actually went to the police and I had a conversation with her. I thought about, you know, I did report it. Statue of Limitations was long up. And the truth is I wasn't really looking to put her behind bars or to get her to admit it. But once I had that conversation with her, I really got it that she had hers. Like I heard who she was. Um, I had done a lot of therapy by then. I I just kind of got it that the future is mine. I'm going to take my future and go. But it was important for me to just take a stand for myself, go to the police, say this happened, and let it live. And of course, confront her about it, which I did. When did you know you were gay? Well, I had been obviously sexualized by both men and women. They were adults, so I'm saying men and women, as a child. So I had experiences of both. So in a way, I even felt fluid in my teens. I dated guys in high school. I had a boyfriend in middle school when I was with the teacher. It was always a bit complicated, you know, because I was living a life that my peers were living, you know, going to the dances, dancing with the boys, having feelings too, you know, not just playing along. So in a way, I think I was free to be with women, to be gay, so to speak. But I also have always had a sensation of I could be with a man, you know, I could be with a woman. It's really for me about the person anymore, especially it's really about a human being. But I felt fluid, you know, as a teenager. So I guess to answer your question, I felt in my teens, I had been with men and women, and I felt free to be with a man or woman or a boy or a girl, <laughs> depending on the year. I don't want to give away the twist, but every review does. Yeah, so I, might I know. As well at this point, say with my dad. Talk about your dad. Yeah. So I was eighteen. I had been with boys and girls. At the time, I was with a woman who was about 12, 13 years my senior, which became a pattern, (laughs) not surprisingly. And we were secretly together. Obviously, I was definitely not coming out to my family, the devout Catholics. You know, Chevy Chase, Maryland, where I'm from, very conservative, Washington, D.C. suburb. I was always in Catholic school, wasn't coming out there. So I was deeply hiding. And my dad had offered to send me to Greece as a thank you for being on basketball scholarship in college. And I asked if I could bring a friend, my girlfriend, but I didn't say that. And he said yes, and we went out to dinner to talk about the itinerary. And in the course of that dinner, not too far in, he said he knew we were together. He knew we were lovers, which completely floored me. I was scared. I was shaking. I was so scared, like, what is this going to mean? This is my devout Catholic father. But he was incredibly loving, which was even more surprising. And then after a few beats, he said, you might be interested in knowing that I buried my lover in the war. And his name was Omar. And I have chills right now saying that because it it was the last thing other than I'm God or I'm the devil that I expected to come out of his mouth. And my life changed profoundly from that moment on. We became confidants. We were carrying more secrets inside the family, but now we could share them with each other. We traveled the world. We went to clubs. Things get really crazy in the book. And then as I get closer to his life, then more secrets, which I won't get into, but Vatican-related secrets start to get revealed to me and confusing 
things, and uh, I don't know how to say it without giving it away, but suffice to say that as I got closer into his world, I realized he had more than one double life. What do you hope readers take away from your book? Shame seems to grow and hang on in the dark places. And I've purposefully written a very descriptive, some might say graphic, portrayal of some tough times. And I've done it purposefully because I think that when we put light on things, we have a shot at moving forward, that we're not trapped in a story and we're not of our story. So I hope that when people finish this book, they realize, hey, this gal's doing fine, one. I know that from the beginning, even if you haven't met me or heard me, but they've read that and can trust I'm good. She's good because she went through a process of actually unraveling some pretty dark, ugly stuff. She's in a different place because she chose to be transparent, to say the truth, as ugly and hurtful as that might seem to some, it's the way through, it's the way out. So I think transparency is the name of the game, particularly if you've had a tough past. And that, to me, is my goal in terms of the takeaway for the reader. This is Steve Pride, bringing you Pride Out Loud. And this has been a conversation with Tina Alexis Allen, author of Hiding Out, a memoir of drugs, deception, and double lives. Until next time, thanks for listening. In addition to acting and writing, Alan is the co-founder of Gina Raffaella Jewelry, which merges art, fashion, and social consciousness. The brand uses deconstructed and transformed bullets as a foundation for daring necklaces, rings, and bracelets. Their philanthropic mission provides a percentage of all proceeds to be donated directly to nonprofit organizations taking a stand for peace. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email stevepride at stevepride.com. And a reminder, we're a global podcast as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. You can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. Although the recent Golden Globes created more controversy than accolades, most of the praise has gone to the hosts, Amy Poehler and Tina Fey, who even gave singer Charlene Kay a tingly feeling. Good night. usually bad for your team, but for you, <laughs> I'll make an exception. See, there's this girl I know who's a, a, everything I want to be. I respect her so much I would get down with her sexually. And if I had her number, I'd be hitting her up textually. Tell me, Tina, how can I get you next to me? Always running through my head, I think of her incessantly There's something about the way she wears that snuggie so suggestively Take off your bossy pants, come here and do it on the desk with me Oh, you know that I would, but you won't, cause you don't like the ladies in that episode of 30 Rock, you wouldn't make that hot chick Jack set you up with 
We thought you were a lesbian But you're not a lesbian You just dress really bad But I don't care about that Cause I would go gay For Tina Fey She's a woman of grace Booty and brains And even though I'm straight She made me almost think Sarah Palin at my stuff Your shoes are hideous and you never wear makeup It's just like someone new from above I would go gay yeah. But see 